I'm Jennifer Grayson, and this is the Uncivilized Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Uncivilized Podcast, where we are reconciling the modern urban existence with our innate human need for the natural world. I'm Jennifer Grayson. I have an amazing show for you today that, honestly, I couldn't have planned. My guests are Carmen and Matt Corradino, two wilderness and survival skills instructors who work as a husband and wife team, along with their three-year-old daughter, on the island of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I first learned about Carmen and Matt from a mutual friend um, this past fall. And, you know, I heard about their Eco Lodge on St. Croix where they teach survival skills. I had, it was on my to-do list to reach out to them. And then Hurricane Irma, followed by Hurricane Maria, two of the most devastating storms in recorded history, struck the Caribbean, including St. Croix, where Carmen and Matt live. Um, They are okay although that's a relative term um, in the aftermath of a hurricane. And so this wound up being the story of the very real survival experience of two survival skills instructors. A few quick disclaimers about the show before we jump in. There's a little more background noise than you may be used to compared with some of my other shows. Uh, The only way to reach Carmen and Matt was by cell phone. They are outside. You can hear the voice of their adorable three-year-old daughter, Eileen, in the background. And also when we taped, I was recovering from laryngitis, but I didn't want to miss the interview because I didn't want to miss this opportunity to speak with them while they were, you know, so busy in the midst of rebuilding. So I do sound a bit more subdued than usual, especially considering the subject matter of this episode. So please don't hold that against me. That's it for me. Thank you all so much from your for your listenership, for your support. I'm really excited to hear what you think about Carmen and Matt's episode. And you can reach out to me over on my Instagram page at, at JenniferGrayson1. I will see you next Monday with a new episode. I'm here with avid naturalists Carmen and Matt Corradino, who are the owners of Mount Victory Camp, an eco-lodge in the northwest hills of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, where they also teach wilderness, survival, and primitive skills via their school, Caribbean Earth Skills. They have both been hard at work restoring their camp to its former glory in the devastating aftermath of Hurricane Maria last fall. Carmen and Matt, I can't even imagine what you've both been through, and I just want to thank you both so much for finding the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's nice to have the distraction. (laughs) Glad to hear it. So so let me first ask you, where are you guys right now, and and how are you able to connect for this call? Uh, Well, right now, really the only thing that's working now for communication is the cell phone with the landlines aren't working. So uh, we're actually down at the beach at the end of the road uh, down from our camp. Usually have some service at our camp, but my communication is tough right now. So has has electricity been restored um, largely on the island? I mean, can you kind of describe for us maybe like what the status is for you? Let's say eighty percent of the island is maybe restored by now. We just got our power back a few weeks ago, so it was about four and a half months until we got our power back. Oh my God! So and and how how are you guys doing? I mean, what's going on at your camp right now? Um, What stage of recovery are you in? Well, we've gotten things pretty much mowable. 
Um, we still have a lot of fix-up to do on a couple of our cabins. One of them escaped any damage, but the other four were, two of them were just mildly damaged. One of them took some more damage, and one was completely destroyed. So the camp itself is definitely still in recovery. Uh, the landscape is definitely doing better. That's really where we focused at first, was to just uh, clear up the trees, clean up the, the fruit trees, um, trim them, and try to you know clear the brush out of the way so that we can mow maintain the gardens um but the the teaching has actually been been going really well uh with the survival skills most people are expecting to sleep in a tent anyway so we have tent campers at, at the camp and we're actually in between a couple of survival classes right now we're about to start one this week and we just had one finished last week Oh, wow. Oh, so you're still teaching. Uh, are people coming to the island from, from the mainland, or are these people who already live on St. Croix? Well, we have a homeschool group that has been coming strong since, uh, you know, like maybe three weeks or so, four weeks or so after the storm. We started our homeschool programs again because parents were definitely looking for more to do with their kids. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I can imagine. And that was, it's been really cool, actually. It's a, it's a good way to, you know, one of the, the, the coolest things about the storm to me, I don't, I don't think of it as a, I, I look at it as a, a force of nature, just like a, a rain storm somewhere else, just a little bit more intense, something that you just have to accept and, and live with. Um, but it's helpful to have people around to teach, to distract us because there's the, you know, you don't really realize the stress when you see such a huge change in your environment around you. And we were living you know, our valley is very quiet, um, you know, mostly sound of birds and the sound of the breeze through the trees. And so our connection to the landscape is pretty deep. And to see it change so dramatically um, kind of brings up a stress that you, that you don't necessarily see or can't define, but kind of comes out in, in gratitude or maybe your behavior changes a little bit. So it's been really great to have people coming to teach. So we had our homeschool kids, and that's really been... Uh, probably the best for, for us psychologically. Um, and then also we have people coming. The last class that we did, they were coming from New York City. It was a, a, a guide service out of New York City. A friend of ours brought them down. And then this week is a class uh, through our, our website as well as through our friend's uh, school. And those are people from all over the U.S. actually. So we're doing a little bit of both. Wow. And so, and what, what's the class that you're teaching? What kind of skills are you going to be teaching? Well, these last two classes have been kind of like a, uh, the basic entry level survival skills for the tropics followed by, uh, a little, well, the first class we just did an overnight. The, those students were definitely less experienced overall. So it was just one night actually in the bush. You know, we didn't actually go to shelter for that class, but we, built beds and chose a sheltered site. Um, and then this next class is doing the same sort of thing, but a little bit more advanced. And we're going to be doing uh, four days of survival where we go out into the bush with just a, we bring a little bit of food. It's what we call the liners portion. It's maybe what you would eat in a day, but we spread it out over four days. Um, so that's all we bring and everything else is gathered from the land. And as well as the things that we've worked on throughout the week, and that could be a fire making kit, for instance, or a fish spear or a basket that they're going to use to collect things in. So kind of a survival hodgepodge with, a, with an adventure at the end. Yeah. So, I mean, has your, has your 
idea of what survival has changed since going through the hurricane? Are you still teaching the same kinds of skills that you thought you would be teaching, you know, having gone through this? So, you know, when you had asked how things are going, as far as the reason why I bring up I see it as a force of nature is because of the experience that we have had. To us, it's pretty normal to not have power. I mean, we had water, so, you know, that's really all we needed. Shelter is pretty easy when you live in the Caribbean, provided there's no hurricane blowing right at that time. Um, but, you know, I would say that, I don't know, can't speak for my wife the whole time, but, <laughs> but um, yeah, for me, it's just, it's just made it easier for people to learn it rather than changing what we've taught. That it's more in their faces, the need for it. And and there's just been more excitement for it as far as the locals that we teach. Right. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I would say the hurricane experience just made it more real for people. And people, instead of wondering, oh, why do you practice these things? Now everyone understands why we do this stuff. Yeah. I mean, did you guys ever, did you ever go through anything like this by, I mean, I know you've done it by choice, but did you ever experience a natural disaster like this before? No. Oh. <laughs> No, no. I mean, we've, we've, I, you know, sure experienced hurricanes where I grew up in Virginia. Um, I mean, you probably did as well, Ocean City. Yeah. But no, nothing where our shelter was compromised, where our business was severely hurt as far as income ability, and where there was no power and massive amounts. Of, it's, it, it's, it seems normal to us now, but it's definitely not normal. You know, um, people's every day is pretty good now, but no, it's been, it's, it's been a really good experience in a lot of ways to just see people's reaction and, you know, how everybody's moods, behaviors, you know, general emotional state has changed, brought a lot of people together. Um, but no, nothing like this at all. Yeah. And so uh, how were you guys even given the option to evacuate? I mean, how long did you guys have to prepare for the storm? Well, there was plenty of time for to evacuate. In fact, we were at a wedding for my brother. There was actually two storms, and we prepared for the first storm, which was actually a little bit stronger. They were both Category 5. But, you know, I think in a lot of people's minds, they just think of Maria and Puerto Rico because that's what's in the news. But it was, Irma was first, and so we were actually pretty prepared. And getting off island was very easy. Our experience was trying to get back on island because we were gone for a wedding. And we weren't able to get back on island until after the storm. I know for myself, I would have preferred to be at home just to be able, not just for our own sake, but honestly for our neighbors and our, and our friends around us. You really rely on your neighbors a lot in a situation like this. If this were like a survival experience that we had, it would be really probably, I see it as being easier because you're already living in a, in a simpler structure. And you're already, you know, kind of expecting a certain level of comfort. But this is more, it's, I don't know, it hits people on a deeper level. Before we left for St. Croix was literally the, the, the week before we left was Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey, where we were living at and teaching for Tom Brown Jr. And, and in that situation, our shelter was fine. But, you know, there was damage around the camp, but, but, in that setting, it was more of an adventure. And in this setting, St. Croix, with our 
with our home, it's, it's more of a life change than that adventure feeling. But because we've spent so much time in nature and spent so much time really up close with our own means of survival, you know, providing for ourselves every day, it, it, I don't know, I feel like we've been in a position to, to be able to observe it more purely, if that makes sense. Our emotions aren't necessarily as tied up in the moment of frustration of having to clean up or not having power or not having hot water. Um, because we're used to that because of our extended time in nature, it's been, I don't know, it's, it's been easier to, to accept it maybe. And you know, there's a lot of benefits for spending time in nature, but just the time in nature makes, has made it easier to deal with this because you're just used to not having the gadgets as much. You're used to not having the option of turning on the computer. Um, you know, you can't turn on the lights to work on something. It changes your whole rhythm. But, you know, it's something that we knew was going to happen at some point when we moved here. So that also makes it easier for, for us to accept. But it really just seems like a part of life to us at this point, as opposed to a disaster. Right. I can imagine. Because, you know, a lot of people also, they have so many possessions, too, that they're, you know, devastated that, to lose. And I can imagine that you were, you know, living in a very pared down type situation. I mean, can you describe what life was like before the hurricane? Like, what was your setup and what was your day to day life like? Um, so we have a small house. Some people might call it a like a little cottage in the middle of camp where that's like our headquarters. It's our house, but also our office. And um, then for campers, we have an outdoor main pavilion and kitchen area where campers can cook and convene. Um, and then we have four cabins or had four. <laughs> and then we have one apartment. Um, and then we also have a workshop area where we keep all our supplies for running the camp and all of our supplies for teaching. So um, when the hurricane came, it blew the roof off of the workshop. The entire roof was gone. So it, it was a challenge to find still ways. Yeah, it still is. To find, to find ways to protect our supplies, our equipment, um, our tools. So um, our cabins were all compromised. And... Um, our house and the apartment were fine. So we were counting our blessings um, just to have that home space to work out of to fix up the rest of the camp. And I think that when a, when a big storm like this happens and it destroys people's things and it makes them, it forces you to look on the bright side, like what did survive, what do I have, and be thankful for that because everybody lost things in the storm. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know. And it's, but it's wonderful that you have that outlook. And so, and so what about like, what about food and water? Are you subsistence livers? Yeah. So the storm really affected our subsistence level on our land, as well as many people who were living off their land. We were eating a lot of food from our land. Um, and, you know, growing things in the garden, we had fruit on the trees, coconuts, we were making coconut milk every morning um and some of our meals like especially every breakfast we had would be completely from our land um and if it wasn't completely from our land there would at least be some ingredients that we had collected so 
before the storm, we were living a large part off the land, but then once the storm hit, it, it just wrecked our fruit trees, it blew all the coconuts down, um, you know, we couldn't garden for a while because you just couldn't even get to the garden. There was just brush everywhere. So um, we we were just amazed at how much money we had to spend at the grocery store after the storm. And um, a lot of local farms, um, you know, they lost all their crops, so you couldn't even buy food at the local farmer's market. Like, everybody was living out of the grocery store. But there was a grocery store. Oh, yeah. The, the grocery store, um, it, opened, it opened back up not too long after the storm, but there, were, there was, like, nothing there to buy. The shelves were bare, and then when they started getting things in, um, there was just a line outside the grocery store that, I mean, it was uh, hours just to get in the door. But fortunately, we had stocked up before the storm. Um, so we were all right. We didn't have to wait in those lines, but they wouldn't even, when they did, when people did get through the grocery store line and they got in, um, they were only allowed to buy as much as they could carry out in their two hands. Um, so the food situation right after the storm was pretty dire. The military was here passing out MREs for people just to make sure nobody was going hungry. But right. people would wait in some really long lines just to get those MREs. Um, so I think that really hit things home for a lot of people of just storm preparedness. And for us, we learned a lot in terms of how we can better prepare for a storm to be more self-sufficient. Just to have more like ground food in the ground that can't get ruined from a storm like to have our cassava and sweet potatoes, just have more of that stuff in the ground. When you um, say in the ground, do you mean actually like planted in the ground? Do you mean like a storage yeah. somewhere in the ground? Right, just planted in the ground um, so that it can just be dug up whenever after the storm. Um, and certain crops that we can have going, like um, one thing that really was great for us is like the pumpkins. Our pumpkins did great after the storm. Um, so we were harvesting those, and we um, we really studied up on our wild greens, so we weren't short of any greens at all. There's all kinds of wild greens for us to harvest. So um, it was just having to buy fruit from the grocery store was a whole new experience for us here. <laughs> we just never had bought fruit in the grocery store before um, since living here. Yeah, I can imagine so one of the great things about living in a tropical environment is that there does is it really like it seems in in all like the magazines where there's just fruit dripping everywhere? I mean, I kind of picture it as like this paradise <laughs> where you're just the, Well, you know, mango season, which is also hurricane season, there is food dripping off the trees, but you know, sometimes we had a we had fruit all over the trees and I mean, hundreds and hundreds of avocados lost to the storm and but yeah, usually when they're the ripest and fullest is when there's a storm that might not <laughs> might take them all away. Oh man! So, and what else are you? I mean, what else did you? You said you learned a lot, Carmen, about what you could do better. What else besides putting stuff in the um, ground? I would say like preparing our fruit trees for the storm. Um, like before a storm hits, 
going and cutting off all of the leaves off of every coconut tree and just leaving the very central site um, because with all the leaves on it, the wind, like the hurricane force wind blowing on a coconut palm, like, yeah, those trees are, they've adapted well to hurricanes, but still we've lost so many trees because um, of the wind drag of those leaves. Also, I've heard so, I've heard since the storm as well that that another thing you can do is cover your garden crops with like a heavy layer of hay that weighs them down. It'll do some damage to them, but usually they're going to do a lot better than they will blowing around in the wind. And then you just take your 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 grasses off or your your straw or hay off of them after the storm, and could have a vegetable much quicker that way. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. And so, what about do you what about water supplies? So, um, water supplies, we live near a stream. Um, so we, the stream was so full of water after that hurricane, it just dumped so much rain. So for months and months, we just had just a gushing stream to bathe in, do dishes, and we had water filters. So, um, we could just drink from the stream once we filtered it. So because of that, of that stream, um, we were fine in terms of water. And so we could get our running water supplied back to the camp. I can imagine that's a different situation than a lot of your neighbors. Yeah, for people living on the island who weren't near a, a pure water source like that, it was extremely difficult. People had to stand in lines with, um, with gallon jugs just waiting to get water. Just, you know, people just, um, you know, flushing toilets and stuff. People didn't have water for that. Yeah, I mean, all these so, things that you never even think about if you've never been through a situation like this. Right. It, it, seems almost simplistic. it seems almost simplistic for people to think or say, like, oh, there's, a, there's an island in the middle of the ocean, and that makes it harder. But it really, it's, it's, a very, it's really the truth. I mean, if you're in the States there, you know, like for Hurricane Sandy, there was plenty of widespread damage, but you can drive to the next town over where there's not as much damage and buy your groceries. You can go to two towns over and go to the store that still has lumber. Um, when you're on a small island like this, it's really the recovery is very, very long. There's just not enough people uh, there to help rebuild. It's harder for people to get here. To, it, it's definitely a different it changes the way that you would prepare for some kind of disaster living on a small island like this, as opposed to being in the United States. But then there's also big advantages to it. Um, I feel like people here, it was really amazing actually to see how, to, to have conversations with people that, you know, I say hello to them. We, we say hello in passing, but every single person that, that we were coming across, really wanted to talk and have a conversation and find out how everybody was doing. You know, it doesn't really happen super often. I don't necessarily recall that ever happening in any hurricane that I had been through in the States. Um, you know, it just, it, I, it was really amazing to see. It's yeah. really actually a blessing. That's wonderful here to hear. And, and what are the people like who live around you? I mean, what do you call people who live in St. Croix? Um, Crucians. Crucians. Okay. So what, what's like, is there like a typical Crucian? Are there a lot of expats like you? Crucian is a hodgepodge. There are, there are West Indian, black West Indian Crucians, people whose family are, 
you know, there's so much mixing between the different islands. Um, but there's definitely people whose families are... Uh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no need to apologize. I love... It. That's the amazing thing. There's joy everywhere when you're three, right? No matter the situation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, um, you know, there's, there's people who are long-time Crucian families, people who lived in St. Croix for six, seven, eight generations. There's also a lot of West Indians from other islands, uh, both from the Virgin Islands and from you know, all over the Caribbean. Uh, usually more from the Eastern Caribbean rather than the Western Caribbean. Eastern Caribbean is the smaller islands, um, and the Western Caribbean is the larger islands. So there's a large Puerto Rican uh, community. There's definitely an expat community, although we're more on the we're on the west end of the island. Is definitely the the more West Indian side of the island. Um, and there's a lot of Palestinians um, oh, came over from Israel. Yeah, after the Seven Days War, um, a whole lot of people came, and this, so there's been a stream of Palestinians and, and Saudis uh, on the island. Um, you know, I know people who are from Germany, people who are from France, and there's a couple who's from Italy who's lived here for 40 years. It's really, it's really a mix-up, but I would definitely say it's a strong, you know, Caribbean, West Indian culture here. And is there a big um, survival skills community and, like, ancient skills community? No, I would say definitely not, but compared to other Caribbean islands, yes, huge. The interesting thing about the tropics is that if you look at the tropics worldwide, there's exponentially greater numbers of people in the tropics who are living day to day with what we would call survival skills. Um, but then if you look at where to learn survival skills, schools, people who are actually actively teaching that you can actually contact exponentially way, way more people in the temperate zones um, who are teaching survival. So as far as a primitive skills community, which in my mind entails more people coming into it because you're teaching actively, um, I would say St. Croix is, is way larger community than usual. We're teaching here. Uh, our neighbors over the hill, um, independently of us, have already started teaching the same survival skills once a year. Um, there's another gentleman who moved down here through their association with, with him who's lifelong been, been teaching uh, primitive skills at, at at gatherings and rendezvous, there's another person that we know from Tracker School who is a long-time Tracker student who lives here and actively teaches. So, yes, we actually do have a survival community, but if, if you were to look at the Caribbean as a whole or even the tropics as a whole, no, there's really not. This is definitely an anomaly. So, so why is it split like that? That's so interesting. Why are all the teachers in, like, the Northeast and, you know, Pacific Northwest and what, and why everyone experience it? Why are, why are you in the tropics? Is there a reason for the split? I would say, I would say that, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, in the tropics, life is easier in certain ways. Food is easier to come by. Just food itself. Shelter is uh, not as much of a necessity except for in certain seasons. Um, so people can live closer to the land. People can, people can live in, in, even in poverty, what we would consider poverty, more comfortably in the tropics and I believe and I can't speak for people who who live you know below that poverty line worldwide poverty line but I believe that there's the mentality that there's not a reason to to teach and learn survival skills 
because it's just a, a almost a part of their life and and it's almost like I've spoken to some people who even whose grandparents even see it as going backwards to learn how to make a fire by rubbing sticks together. Who would rather their kids spend time getting jobs and moving to cities and living a modern life. Um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because from, you know, I've lived in cities before after, after teaching um, primitive skills, lived in Washington, DC and grew up in, in Norfolk, Virginia, which is, they're definitely cities. And there's a, a huge disconnect there. Um, People can't even define it. I believe it's a disconnection from nature. Whether that disconnection from nature is because people don't have a beautiful view or woods to go to, or, or even if they have that, there's also the disconnection from our food sources, uh, the disconnection from how to build a shelter that keeps you alive, where, how does the water get from wherever it comes from to your tap? Uh, there's a huge disconnect there. And so there's this longing for, for, for something different something more. I feel like people who are living um, in a more of a subsistence lifestyle by choice or by force, there's a contentment there and uh, less, maybe less of a reason to reach out, less of, a, less of a sense of desperation to want to spread that message. I know for me, growing up where I grew up and, and felt myself change through experiences in nature. It was something that like electrified me and made me want to, to spread that feeling to help other people to, to have that same uh, realization of their place in the world. And, and that same to me, once I started spending more time in nature and more time in survival or semi survival situations, it's just such a huge contentment and, and, and a sense of, of knowing my place in the world and yeah. that's an, an amazing thing, but it, it almost makes me complacent more maybe than somebody who's just coming to this the first time, because now it's a part of my life. I think that that's why, I think that's why we see, I, I think it's really the, the, what you might call like the poverty. I, I hate the term poverty. I don't think of people as being poor in the way that most people think of people as being poor. Um, but yeah, if you look at that, at that poverty divine, I think that's the reason why there's a resurgence of, of, of these, uh, I also don't like the term survival skills. I've considered life skills, earth skills. I don't, I don't know. I don't know of a term that, that captures it, but, um, there's really a resurgence to that. And I feel like in a lot of areas in the tropics in the world, it's, it's, there's more poverty, but there's also more of ease of life. And so people, I don't know, maybe, maybe people are just more content and have their community around them and don't feel the need to reach out so far as we do in our modern world. Yeah, you articulate you articulate that so beautifully. And I, I think you're right. I think it's like, it's just where you're not as disconnected where we are now and living in Los Angeles, we've already lost all of those skills. I mean, not survival skills, but just the most basic knowledge about how to live and how to do things with your hands and how to do things yourself. And we've already become disconnected where I think is, you know, like a lot of different cultures, they haven't lost those family bonds yet. They haven't lost those essential skills. Even like when you're talking about how to cook, you know, people have <laughs> forgotten everything in the modern world. So I, I'd love to spend a little time. Can you guys talk to me about your backgrounds? Like you said, there was this moment, Matt, where you really felt electrified. Like there was, you started realizing there was this whole world. So can you tell me about like 
your journey and your upbringing, when did you first come to this whole world of, I guess, what should we call it? Like ancient skills, um, primitive yeah. skills, you know? Ancient skills probably captures it better than primitive skills. Yeah. You want to start here? Sure. I'll, I guess I'll go first. Well, um, for me, it started at a young age. Um, when I was when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time outside. Even though I lived in a town, um, I just spent a lot of time outside in the yard climbing trees and was just captivated by the outside world. What town and, are you from, Carmen? Uh, Ocean City, Maryland. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, um, I had a magical childhood and looking at, like, as a child, looking at the way the adults around me lived, I kind of didn't want to grow up because the adult world just seemed kind of gray. And I just knew I wanted to do a job that was outside. And that's what did, how I what knew. did your parents do, Carmen? Um... Well, my dad was in a car accident when he was 21 years old, and he got, um, he was given like a yearly sum from the the trucking company that ran into him, because they basically made it so that he couldn't work at all. Um, So he was paid as an employee by that company, and... um, and then my and his parents also helped support him. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so um, I had a unique childhood in that way. Um, and when I was fourteen, my mother found out about Tom Brown Junior Survival School, and she also found out about the kids programs that they ran. So when I was fourteen, I started getting into this stuff, into the survival skills. And when I realized that. I didn't have to give up that magic of the outdoors, of that that magic that many of us feel when we're kids and we're playing outside and um, just spending time in nature. And I realized I didn't have to give that up. Um, I didn't have to, like, enter the rat race. And um, then I, I, was, I was hooked, and I just started practicing and practicing all the survival skills I could whenever I had a chance when I get home from school on the weekends all summer long and then I ended up um, being an instructor at the summer camp where I learned all the stuff that um, Coyote Tracks which was started by Tom Brown Jr. as a way to teach kids kind of like a tracker school for kids and teenagers and then I eventually um, you know once I graduated from college where I, um, I studied environmental studies and sustainability. Um, I, I went to the tracker school and did their caretaker program where you live for a year in a primitive shelter that you build and you help out at the school and you just live out there in the pine barrens and practice your skills and live off the land as much as you can break the ice in the stream in the winter to bathe and drink water from the spring and, and just live it. And um, from there, I went on to be an instructor at the tracker school, and um, we were off that we were instructors together there. But I'll I'll let Matt. I'll, I'll turn it over to Matt. Yeah. So um, I started. You know, I guess growing up, we were. I mean, I wouldn't say I was outdoors type of person growing up. Um, but I think for me, there was always just moments that 
that, that stick with me for no definable reason, you know, looking up at some trees, staring at the sun, just moments that always stuck with me that were associated with nature. And, um, I was at college and was tired of like the, the partying scene. And I, I remember I was gone for a, some family trip. And when I came back, I was like, you know, I'm not going to go out and party. I want to, I would like to go camping, but I didn't think anybody would go because it was January. And a couple friends actually called me up and said, Hey, you want to go camping? And I was like, sure, let's go camping. So we were doing all this winter camping and, and I don't know, that just kind of, I don't know, sort of something came alive in me. And then I, I through total circumstance ran into a friend who, after I told him about our winter camping adventures, told me about Tom Brown and said, oh, he's this guy, he writes these books, and he goes in the woods naked, and then he ended up leaving those books with me, and actually, I hadn't seen him since then. Didn't even talk to him for about 15 years after that, because I just lost contact with him. Wow. Um, but I had the books, and I read them, and then, um, you know, I was planning on going back to school. I, I had moved out west. I was living in, in Northern California. I had a girlfriend who was going to Humboldt State, and so I ended up in, in Arcata, and she actually encouraged me to go, and once I took one class, I knew that this was what I wanted to do uh, with my life. But it was definitely more of a struggle. I mean, I had to work. I asked my parents if I could stay at their house, save money to take classes, which they were very gracious with, but really were very, very questioning of what in the world I was ever going to accomplish um, doing this, and gave me plenty of opportunity to reconsider, but they always kind of stuck with me enough that I can't remember when it was. I remember coming back from some certain class and, and my dad had bought some tools for me, which was the very first sign from them that they were like, okay, you might be crazy, but we'll stick with you on this. Um, and so I just took as many classes from as many people that I, as I could. Um, and then started, started, um, an internship at, at the tracker school and then did the same caretaker program that Carmen did, uh, which is actually when I first met her. She was a student of the class. I met her and then that's, that was going to be my next together. question. Yeah. Okay. So you met at yeah, the school. We, we met and then, and then years later we, we, we started teaching together at the kids camps, but we're just friends. And then, um, I don't know, maybe two or three years after teaching together, um, after I started teaching for Tom at the tracker school, um, the relationship just kind of started from, I don't know what the spark was. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think for me, I, there was, you were asking about that moment where, where there were, there was like, I, I don't know what you would call it. Like just a moment of enlightenment or just a moment where things crystallized, like my relationship with nature crystallized. Um, I would say it was a long process but I think it was while I was a, a caretaker at the tracker school, you're living in a shelter um, that you build with your hands, uh, pretty much living off the land, not completely because there's classes and, and you're restricted in the areas you can go to. So, you know, we had some food from, from the store, but, you know, living off the land as much as you could. And I had spent, I mean, I don't even know how many nights in a primitive shelter doing just many survival trips before I became a caretaker at the school. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 trips that I did, built a shelter, stayed in it for a few nights, disappeared it, and then went back to, to work on Monday. Um, but while I was living there, I remember walking back to my shelter, 
from a little, we were living in these shelters, but my friends came and we all went out and built survival shelters, like even more, even more rough kind of situation. Uh, came back from this little mini survival trip and I, I had the same feeling that I would always feel when I was going back home after these little survival trips. Like it was just kind of like I was leaving something behind. Um, and, and that, and that I was going to miss something really important if I wasn't in that close, intense relationship with nature. And then I remember coming back to my shelter and sitting down and just looking up and, and here's a shelter that I built for myself that I was really taking for granted. Uh, I don't know why I did. Maybe it's because I was using some modern materials and I used a shovel, whereas when I did my survival trips, it was all nothing modern. Um, and something just clicked in my mind about, about that connection that I had with my shelter and, and um, how that shelter was directly from nature. And I don't know, even though I was inside this, what, what had felt like a house almost to me at that point, um, just clicked it. Like, you know, this is all a part of me, not just that I built it myself, but really a part of me that I, I put this time and energy into it and it reflected who I was. And then, I don't know, just, just something really clicked there. And, and, and I, I started to really see the, the importance, the depth of these teachings. And I remember having a phone conversation with Carmen. Um, you know, this is years after being a caretaker and just something in her voice and her way of being told me that she had that same spark, that same connection that I had. And I don't know, I, I really think that, that being in nature, being this intense relationship with nature helped bring us together as a couple and helped make that happen. I, I don't know I don't know what really sparked the relationship, but uh and I really think that nature had a lot to do with it, that, that our connection with nature had a lot to do with it. And then, so how did you both get from there to here? When did the planning begin for St. Croix? And did you always know it was going to be somewhere tropical? So I came to St. Croix just before I was hired at the tracker school and just on vacation. While I was here, I met somebody who taught summer camps, invited me to come back and teach at her summer camp. And just after that was when Carmen and I's relationship began. I invited her to come with me. The person ended up canceling. Like we're talking to them on the plane over here. So we had a, you know, a month of time to spend here and, and became uh, better friends with the people who were running Mount Victory camp at the time. The, the, the people who built it up. Oh, so there were other owners. You didn't build it from scratch. No, we did not. We did not. Although we're rebuilding it from scratch. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, so um, so we, we we started with you know a friendship with them, and they offered for us to have a cheaper stay if we wanted to try to run a class here on St. Croix. So we put together a class that we advertised to tracker students, and for six years uh, we brought tracker students down for the same type of class that we're doing this week, like a survival skills plus a little survival immersion. And we had always fallen, we would kind of fall in love with the, with the island and always felt like we wanted to live here, but didn't want to leave our jobs at the tracker school to move and start something brand new and have to get normal jobs. <laughs> right. But then uh, the opportunity to be able to make the down payment on the camp kind of came together and we jumped on the opportunity. It was a really hard decision because we knew that it would 
um, potentially shorten our, our time at the tracker school teaching for Tom. We taught for him for a couple summers after we moved here um, and then hadn't been teaching for him, but actually we're going to be returning uh, in the summers to teach for Tom again. So it's great. We get, we get the best of, best of both worlds. Um, but yeah, we just felt in, felt, fell in love with St. Croix. And, and I think that I can't speak for you, but for me, um, I don't know. I always thought when I was here, like my vision was strongly pulling me here, that there's something that I needed to accomplish here or, or that there was something, yeah, something needed from me for this land. And, and I don't know why it was here instead of where I grew up or where I learned the primitive skills or any other number of amazing, beautiful places in the world. But something about this small island just spoke to me each time. And then, you know, Tom teaches a lot about following your inner vision, which is like your inner voice that knows what you need to be doing, not what you want to be doing. <laughs> and there was always that inner vision connection. There was always that, that something deeper inside of me that was speaking, uh, asking me to make this part, this place a part of my life more. And I don't know if I just convinced Carmen, but. <laughs> <laughs> Carmen, and say, you know, save for the hurricane and, and, but, you know, speaking to you both, it seems like, you know, even everything you're dealing with now with the hurricane is, fits into that vision too, you know, whatever your overall mission may be. Because we were both drawn here in that deep, visceral way, um, when the hurricane hit, it's like, there's, there's got to be a lot more hurricanes like that to drive us away from the island right now. Because the, the feeling of, of, like, this is where we need to be is, is strong for both of us. So it's easy for us to stay in the wake of such a natural disaster. It was very hard for me personally not being here. Even aside from being here to protect my things, just not experiencing that. As talking with people, one of our neighbors was describing his experience and he's like, oh, well, I put my car under this tree, but then I was like, oh, this tree gonna fall on my car. So I put it in the bushes. I just sat in my car and I figured if it got bad, I'd go in a ditch. And the car was rocking. And, man, Matt, it was awesome, man. You missed it. And it, I was like, oh, it, it does sound awesome. Fearfully awesome. But uh, there's just something that happens when you get a deep connection with nature that, I don't know. It's just like I wanted to experience it along yeah. with the trees. No, I, I get that. And you have a young daughter and obviously you have to protect your family. But I know I get it. I'm someone who's been fascinated since I was a young girl with tornadoes and experiencing natural disasters. And if I mean, if you are lucky enough to survive something like that unscathed, it's it's kind of exciting, you know, and, and I can imagine it's your home and you want to be part of it. And so I, I totally, totally get that. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's like a roller coaster of emotions. It's like the exact same roller coaster of emotions that happens when, for me at least, that during a survival trip, but during a survival trip, the roller coaster happens in the very early part. And then for most of the rest of the survival trip, I'm, I'm kind of at this functioning level. And for this, it, it's been way more drawn out with the same sort of roller coaster. Um, I'm not sure if I'm at the acceptance stage yet, <laughs> but I think I'm close. Yeah. So what, what can we do to help you? What are, for people who are listening, how can we contribute? What, what do you need? Um, well, we, we have a GoFundMe site. Um, so if people feel 
like they would like to donate to help rebuild our camp, that's a great way to do it. Um, if people want to come to St. Croix, they can check out our place and support us by either coming to stay at our camp or take a class. Um, and I would say if, you know, if there are people out there who are thinking about not just us, because really our whole region was really hit hard this year, helping hands is really the main thing that I noticed from all of our neighbors and friends, business owners, everybody. It's really, I mean, obviously having the cash on hand helps. Um, I think the government does a good job, but it's, it's interesting because if you have a lot of money, you can easily get a very low rate loan. If you don't have any money and no roof, then you can get help with your roof. But if you have a little bit of money, you can't get much federal help. Um, so a lot of people are in that situation, but I would say helping hands is really, really the number one thing that, that people need right now is just so much to do. Right. Yeah. So important. And I'm going to put links to GoFundMe, your GoFundMe site on my website. And so you both said you're, you're going to stay there, even though you've witnessed something as devastating as this. And, you know, with climate change and stronger hurricanes, I, I know there's, go, there's probably going to be more in the future. So what's the plan? What's your future plan? Well, you know, before we bought, I mean, just looking at historical statistics is 30 years. I mean, I think the average is 27 years between major hurricanes. Um, so it was something that we were kind of mentally prepared for. Um, honestly, for us, I, our plan is just to, I mean, the, the design of the cabins, is, it, they're like a sailcloth type roof, and that's designed to come off because we couldn't get back on time for the storm. Um, nobody here cut down the roofs. If the roofs had just come down, the cabins would be fine. So that design feels right. Uh, I think that... Um, I would say on a personal level going forward that once the mortgage is paid, I, I personally don't really feel much stressed by the idea of more hurricanes as long as I have a strong room to go to during them. Um, I know that we'll probably get to a point when we're older where we don't feel like doing that work because it's a ton of work. Um, but I don't know. It's strange. I, I remember when I lived in California hearing some uh, editorial on the nightly news uh questioning why anybody would live on the east coast because there's a hurricane season a whole season where you might get smashed by this huge storm and, and that's even magnified where we're at now um and I, I don't know it's something about it just made me made me laugh at the idea of, of, of why should we be afraid of forces of nature i mean you bring up the, the point of climate change and expected more hurricanes and that's definitely a factor that comes into my mind, but where could we possibly escape that? If, if the climate is changing and the earth is changing at the rate that we expect it to be changing, there's nowhere that I could feel completely safe. So I see it as the survival training that we've done, the survival training that we teach is our insurance policy that we understand what it takes to live we just, you know, as long as we can make it through whatever that disaster is. Yeah, well said. So what, and so what advice do you have then for people who, A, would love to get more into this world of learning these skills, and B, for people to weather disaster situations? 
what do people need to know? Because I'm in LA and, you know, we don't get hurricanes, but we don't know an earthquake could hit any time. So what kind of advice do you guys have? Um, I would say that, well, for people living in an urban area, um, one of the best things you can do that's just really easy right now is just to pick up a copy of Tom Brown Jr.'s Field Guide to City and Suburban Survival. And in there, it has great instructions and tips and things just for basic shelter, water, fire, food in the city. Um, things that people might not even think about. It's a great book. A really simple thing also that you can do um, that some people know because they're more involved with their homes is to go uh, see how your home works. Where is the electricity box coming from the street? Where do those wires go to first, second, third? Where is the water coming in from, from the street? Where, where are the pipes located at? Um, those things can be really valuable in a, in a situation you could where you the tap doesn't work. There's sometimes water in your pipes that are lower down from your tap where you can get water from. Um, where's your hot water heater? Most people need the electricity to pump the water, but have a hot water tank full of water. Um, some people, a lot of people know those little things about their home, but really just knowing those little things about your home makes it a lot easier uh, when it's time to, you know, when, when you need to plug the generator, where do you, which outlets do you need to plug in, if you need to fix something. I mean, just knowing those things about your home is huge in a situation like this. Right. I am going to go make sure I know all of these things after I get off this call with you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We actually had a, there was a massive natural gas odorant leak in our neighborhood about a month ago. And so I learned where everything was after that, you know, <laughs> including the gas shutoff line. So, yeah, so important. Um, Basic preparations. I mean, it's so easy to have a backpack full of, um, you know, water purifiers, uh, some MREs in there, but but really, honestly, learning the plants in your in your garden in your yard. There's so many edible plants in people's front yards and backyards, in what we consider waste areas where there's quote unquote weeds coming up. There's a lot of food on the landscape, and in my mind, uh, really putting some time and dedication into learning those wild plants that are immediately in your area is more valuable than having a stock of food because your stock of food runs out if you can't replenish it. Um, and I know there's a lot of people in, in, in cities who are teaching wild edible classes and there's just a lot of food in people's front yards that we overlook. So I would say that's, that would be a huge thing for people to do um, to be prepared. Yeah. And what about for people who, who want to live a life like yours? What kind of advice do you have for them? Stick to it. <laughs> yeah. Do Stick it? Stick to it. You yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, so many people want to live like a, learn these primitive skills, live a, live a, uh, you know, a subsistence lifestyle or a close to the land lifestyle, but um, people get discouraged because it's hard to amass these skills. These, these are skills that people passed on to their children that by the time they were five or six, they already had a basic understanding of in, in cultures not too long ago. And nowadays, we usually have to have an interest in it when we're adults, somehow find it through a YouTube video and then pursue it. But by that point, we're, it's harder to learn. It's harder to learn when you're in your 20s and, and 30s and beyond than it is when you're young. So if you're interested in, in this type of lifestyle, you, you have to have the, 
you have to stick to it because you're going to be uncomfortable until you increase your comfort level. Once the uncomfort level gets bigger, it's always bigger. And then you get it a little bit bigger, it gets bigger still. And before you know it, you can withstand a lot of things with a smile on your face. Thank you both so much. You've given me so much inspiration today. I wish you both all the best. And I, I hope to come visit you one of these days, if not in St. Croix, then when you're up in the, you said the East Coast this summer? Yes, that's right. At the Tracker School in New Jersey, of all places. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio so you don't miss the next one. And please leave us a rating and review. If you want to talk more about this episode or have an idea for a future show, head over to my Instagram page. That's at Jennifer Grayson one As with every episode, the resources and links for this show are available at JenniferGrayson.com, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, which comes out once a month. Our theme music is by composer Paul Damian Hogan. That's it for me, and I'll see you next Monday with a new episode.